0: The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News.
1: Denmark's Ørsted is one of the most highly valued and lauded corporate players in the energy transition. Can it hold on to its status as an ESG darling? Hear my chat with Ørsted's Chief Executive Mads Nipper. Welcome to The Exchange, a conversation with the key people of interest to business and financial professionals around the world. I'm George Hay, Associate Editor of Reuters Breaking Views, the global financial commentary arm of Reuters News, and I'm coming to you from London. For this week's episode, I chatted to Mads Nipper, the newest chief executive of Denmark's wind titan, Ørsted. We talked about the ESG investors who have sent Orsted shares up to rarefied levels and whether they should be backing the transition of heavy emitters as well. We also talked about the company's pipeline of projects, which it hopes will allow it to stay in its favourable market position. And we also discussed why green hydrogen is such a big deal for the producers of renewable energy. Finally, this being a pre-COP26 chat, we also talked about what Orsted expects and wants to be achieved at November's conference give it a listen. Mads, we're going to start by looking at how renewable stocks have jumped around so far in 2021. Allstead, for example, has more than trebled in value since 2017, but its shares and those of other renewable energy stars are also off quite sharply from the start of the year. How do you account
0: for that? Yeah, I think in general, I mean, we don't spend a lot of time neither on, on really commenting on the share price development nor sort of follow it very rigorously at a short term. What, what you described in the beginning to say, the, the, the sort of the, the consistent four-year journey of an increase is what we really care about because this is fundamentally a long-term business. And, and we also consistently take a long-term view on that. But I think, I mean, no doubt that there has been, especially towards the end of last year for the entire sector, a steep increase due to, to sort of, I mean, there was a, a lot of funds going into renewables and then that was rebalanced uh, in Q1. So the way we tend to, I tend to look at it when I see the shares of, of the entire industry, is that if you if you isolate what probably the slightly extraordinary development in Q4 and the normalisation in Q1, it's a much sort of it's a much flatter and, and stable development, if, uh, or and even an increase that continues the trend. And I think th- those things will happen occasionally, but uh, but, but again. Our focus is to not be sort of too, fo- too focused on the short term, but ensure that the consistent uh, year-over-year increase continues.
1: Right. Yes, uh, absolutely. I mean, how, why do you think that this kind of change in the renewables, the funds going into the renewable sector happened at the start of the year? What changed? It's not because people suddenly think that there, there isn't going to be an energy transition, is it?
0: No, 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 not at all. I think, I I mean, there are probably some macro factors of saying that there is now there is suddenly, I mean, there was some, we were seeing slight interest rates and interest increases in especially the US. And that also changes some of the fundamentals in the market about what shares are attractive. And that is why sometimes you go for, in that environment, could go to rebalance a little bit too much towards value stocks. But there were a number of those things that I have not yet talked to any investor analyst who doubts that the long term sort of thrust behind renewables is going to change at all uh, and i think there were no sort of company specific sort of information that should dramatically change that neither from orsted or some of the other big players in the industry so honestly i think that this was something where where it is it 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 was something that probably led to a rally with with also with the scarcity of some of the sort of pure play players in uh, in the industry and then, uh, and then that was rebalanced due to a few uh, external factors, such as, for example, the uh, slight interest rate, uh, rate increases we saw, especially in the U.S. market.
1: Right. Fair enough. So you had a capital markets day at the beginning of June and you increased the capacity targets that you, you were kind of working towards in the long term. But I mean, one of the things that underpins that is you expect global wind capacity to roughly triple to, to, by 2030 to over, over 2 terawatts. And I just wondered, you know you, obviously you can do what you can do to work towards your own targets, which are a kind of sizable chunk of that, but a government's doing enough to help you know what 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 needs to obviously if the if the if the overall kind of market doesn't grow in the way you think it will, then that won't be great for you so what 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 are governments doing? Are they doing enough? do you think
0: i d- I don't think anybody can ever do quite enough. Because the world is on a journey where we where we where we radically need to increase the build out of renewable energy. And I think in many cases, we are seeing governments do a really good job. In other places, things are moving too slow. But in general, we should all apply the mindset, whether it's industry or government, that we should all probably do even more. Uh, And I think if you look at what are some of the things that could be going uh, even even better, Uh, It it would be something like making seabed and land and and permitting processes both more available and also more predictable and and effective. Because honestly, I think that we are seeing it. That's really great. We are seeing more and more countries and, and even regions stepping up on committed targets saying we will reach this capacity by 2030 or 2040 or 2050. And that's fantastic because that's where the journey starts but it needs yeah. to be followed by, by very swift action. And and in our the industry that is currently our, our main business and where we have a clear global leadership in offshore, we, we are seeing that making seabed available fast enough uh, is, is, is not happening everywhere. It, it needs to be even faster.
1: Right. And what are the kind of things that are stopping the governments from doing that? Like, why why, why aren't they being made fast enough?
0: And I, I think it's because one of the reasons is that, there is, that, that it's a complex, a complex stakeholder uh, picture. Uh, I mean, we, we are, as, as we also announced at our Capital Markets Day, we've said that no later than 2030, ideally before, we would be biodiversity positive. Because we need right. to, to ensure that that build out of renewable energy happens in pact with nature and not sort of at the expense of nature or biodiversity. But, but that is something where, for example, Natural England and others, they obviously, for very good reasons, as they should care about one of the biodiversity impacts. That takes time. And also there are other stakeholders such as fishermen uh, unions and so on that need to be taken good care of. And and I understand that it's difficult. But given the urgency of the situation that we need to radically increase the build out, governments and regulators around the world need, together with the industry, to face that uh that, that those complexities and deal with them more effectively than we do today
1: right i mean would you would you say you the uk and the rand is is quite a i mean the uk is obviously quite a big part of your portfolio at the moment and probably yeah. will stay stay that way i mean would you say the uk is kind of towards the most progressive end or the most kind of active end in terms of the kind of things we're talking about and preparing the preparing the pitch for new wind
0: no absolutely i think i think the uk has done many really good things especially for offshore wind i mean uh, uk has together with denmark sort of been the front runners they have the 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 largest installed capacity of any country in the world so yeah. and 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 also installed a really effective sort of support scheme with the, with the contract for difference that have really helped accelerate the build out yeah uh, and 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 then i think it, this is a matter of keeping momentum in everything from Again, yeah, making seabed available as something that will keep the com- the, the technology competitive, uh, but also to ensure that that very thought through grid upgrade grids happen to accommodate for the even sort of larger share of renewables that will inevitably come. So, so there are some structural things where the U even the UK that has been and is a progressive country. Will we'll, uh, we'll, will 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 also need to take some long term measures that are that are necessary to support the continued development of of offshore and and by the way, also of other renewable technologies.
1: Mm. But I mean, obviously, as with any market, you can't you can't be totally clear that the government will do that. And I mean, how how should how do how do you go about thinking uh, about the kind of robustness of your pipeline relative to to anyone else's or or when you when even when you're uh, assessing a competitor's pipeline like mm. what what's is there a way of thinking about the kind of how robust those are because you you've got all these i think you want to be at 50 gigawatts by 2030 and how much of that is stuff that you've already got you know you've already yeah. kind of nailed down and how yeah. much is stuff where you're making an assumption that you will kind of because you are a big player that you will win certain amounts were enough to kind of hit that target and I mean, what's the situation for you and and like how do you benchmark your, yourself against you know your competitors
0: yeah and, and yeah very good question we because this is one of our key strengths as not only the largest but also by far the most experienced developer in offshore wind we do have a very big pipeline of sort of, uh, of, of 50 plus gigawatts in, in offshore alone and what we did, and we also communicated that publicly at our Capital Markets Day, we actually split that in what we call a substantiated pipeline and opportunity pipeline. For the very reason that substantiated pipeline is something we, uh, we, we sort of say, this is something where we have a very high likelihood of actually making that happen. Whereas some of the opportunity pipeline is more we saying, we are working on it, we are looking at it, we are developing it, we are continuing to mature the opportunities, but, but, but we don't quite know how likely it is and that is where we, we are trying to introduce that narrative because we, we, we don't think it's a good thing for anyone if if uh, if if all developers around the world just throw around sort of super high gigawatt uh, pipeline numbers because it it may give false promises to what is actually realistic to develop but but our Our, I, I, embarrassing, you forgot the specific, the very specific number, but I think it was, it was, it was well over 15 gigawatts of substantiated pipeline that we have, that we are quite certain will be, will bring us safely towards the 30 gigawatt offshore that we target for 2030. On top of that, we, we of course, will have uh, additional, both from onshore and renewable hydrogen, which will bring us to the, bring us to around the, uh, to the estimated uh, 50 gigawatt ambition.
1: Yeah okay interesting. Um, I mean uh, one thing that is kind of um, one pretty obvious point about renewables is that they're supposed to displace fossil fuels and as it happens at the moment gas prices especially in Europe are extremely high for for a variety of reasons. Um, When you see what's going on with um, oil or gas prices and you see that they're very high do do you kind of fundamentally go well, that's handy because that increases the relative appeal of, of what I sell. Or do you worry that it could be a kind of, it could be a bit of a threat if it kind of creates a, a bit of a populist backlash because people think that there's too many subsidies going to renewables or whatever, uh, and the carbon price is going up and that's hitting their them in the pocket. How do you think about that?
0: I think it's, it's fundamentally, it's primarily a good thing. Uh, you, you're right. There is a risk that that the move away from fossil fuels could potentially be slowed down. Uh, I don't hope or believe that that will happen because because obviously with much higher uh, oil and gas prices, then the profitability of that business that we all know we need to get out of will could risk being slower. But I mm-hmm. think fundamentally it will also just prove what has already been the case for 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 quite a while is that for new capacity. I mean, w- wind or solar is competitive. With with, the, with with fossil fuels uh, and 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 even lower priced. So today, uh, I mean, uh, it, a, a new wind farm brings cheaper electricity than a new uh, coal-fired plant, a power plant, and that is why I think it's it's a it's fundamentally a good thing for the rollout that the that the gas prices are are high. Right.
1: Okay. It's clearly it it could be a kind of flashpoint ahead of. COP26. Um, I, mean, I tried to work out how helpful it would be for the politicians to arrive in Glasgow with a load of people being angry about high gas prices. It's quite quite, quite hard to work out which will be the more dominant force.
0: Yeah, I, I think in, in general, I mean, something that is not good for the world should ideally be more expensive because due to market mechanism, mechanisms that will make us consume less. I mean, that that's how simple we see the equation so of, of course. The the, the, the the sort of underlying reality is a lot more complex and nuanced than that. But I think it is a good thing that, that also with carbon pricing, hopefully coming and coming up, then this is something that will automatically, for a different reason than today, but this is something that will automatically also bring up the the, the, the prices of fossil fuels.
1: Right. A kind of step back question in a way. In um, If we kind of look at ESG investing, and certainly, the way that ESG investors approach climate change, they, they want to be kind of seen to be doing good. And they want to, and they want to do good as well. So, obviously, investing in like a, a kind of green star like Allstead is a is an attractive thing for ESG investors to do, and that's partly why you have such a high valuation. But I just wondered what you thought about in 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 a way. There's an argument that, that ESG investors should invest in. The companies that need to change and already have the big heavy uh, emissions in them, such as, you know, BP Shell, like the oil majors, and then use their kind of pulpit to try to enforce change. I, I just wondered what you thought about that, um, because, uh, I mean, obviously, perhaps they could do both, but like, how, do you, how do you approach that?
0: I, I, this is what probably one of the questions that I'd be refrained refrain from being very specific on, because I think it's essentially, the, the, the investment decisions of any uh, sort of uh, big investors should be what, what they evaluate in their portfolio is right. We are convinced that everybody needs to transform their business because fundamentally fossil fuels is not uh, sustainable. Uh, and and we, we have seen over the past more than a decade that, that uh, it's, it's, it can go fast, but it's not a super easy ride. So you can say that depending on what, how you weigh your investment criteria, whether you invest in somebody who has already proven that this can be done uh, and is ready to scale even further, or whether you want to invest in somebody who is promising to transform their business, I think is is fundamentally something that the investment committees of the investors will, investors will need to decide. But I can say for sure that we will continue to push and, and also be an inspiration, or call it a catalyst for change, where we can hopefully inspire everybody else to not just change, because we think that everybody understands they have to, but we are hoping that we can inspire others to change faster, because we have proven that it's possible.
1: Yeah, well, I suppose I suppose that's kind of the reason why I was asking it. Really, was just Orsted, obviously, used to be called Dong Energy, and it used to be a, a big a big player in oil and gas, and you know, it's. There's been various bumps in the road for the, over the last decade during that transition that you've now kind of successfully made. And it's just it's it's quite interesting because it's, you know, it, quite a lot of the uh, oil majors are in a position where you were maybe, you know, a decade ago. And if everyone just divests from them, then if everyone had just divested from you, uh, no one had wanted to give you capital. 10 years ago then that wouldn't have actually helped you turn into where you are now uh today so it's just it's it's more just a kind of uh observation really just about mm. oil majors and they question about whether you whether they should be divested from or engaged with and it's it's a bit of an open question
0: at the moment. it is an open question and it's it is one that i think is more for the for for the investors than it is for somebody like uh, like orsted
1: fair enough well um I just wanted to wonder, I mean, the European Green De- Deal is a fundamentally important piece of your strategy going forward, I imagine. How much do you expect to gain from it? How is that kind of translating itself into things that are useful for you at the moment?
0: Yeah, I think w- what the way we see the European Green Deal or the very strong and clear ambitions also from the Biden administration in the, in, the, in the US is that th- this is another reinforcement and another sort of Sort of comforting factor that the ambitions that have been set out are actually going to happen, because the, the we, we we are starting to see both funds but also policy measures to support the ambitions that are out there, mm-hmm. uh, and and that's why the the European Green Deal is something that brings us comfort that we we will see the transformation happen. Uh, it gives us greater certainty that it will happen and even happen at the speed that we are hoping and that that also. Both the EU Commission, but also the, uh, the 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 national governments are seeing. So we are not sitting there and saying how much money or business would we have made with or without the European Green Deal. That's literally impossible to quantify. But we see it as sort of as a solidification that that the market growth that we are building our plans on actually is going to happen. So we see it as a as a really positive thing, and also one that will that will make it more likely than not that we will hit even the short to mid-term targets uh, in in 2030. Right, and
1: I mean look, a key part of the um, Green Deal is you know, the the European Union is is really keen on green hydrogen, yeah. and there are obvious, obvious synergies there between your production of um, uh, renewable power, which is a key input into green hydrogen, and um, and what they're wanting to do. Could you kind of give a sense of, can you kind of quantify or give a sense of how big a deal hydrogen is for for someone like Orsted? Because it's you know you, you could. You can equally just you know keep on uh, building building your turbines and crea- creating electricity you don't you don't yeah. have to kind of be a big player in green hydrogen but do you yeah. do you want to do you think it's a kind of really big opportunity or is it is it kind of really like a one of the, a decade or fifteen years off to too kind of sketchy to get involved in commercially at the moment
0: no it is a big deal josh uh, i it, it, it's, it's it's even a very big deal. Because like, uh, like over the past decade, uh, in the beginning, many people now, hopefully everyone is seeing that we need to have a fundamental transformation from fossil fuels to green, to, 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 to green electricity. And likewise, we are seeing that not everything can be electrified. And that means we need hydrogen-based green fuels or just green hydrogen to, yeah. to decarbonize some of the hard to abate sectors. That, that needs to happen. Otherwise, there is not a chance that we'll get to net zero. Uh, so, uh, and, and this is a little bit like like Orsted was one of the one of the first uh, in and in offshore the first to wholeheartedly embark upon and and a transformation to, in, in direction of the future proof business model. We see hydrogen as the same thing, and obviously as a major generator of green electrons, taking a next step and working with offtake partners such as large industrials and, and in priority sectors such as steel or or mer- Time transport or, 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 or refineries. We, we believe that this is, has the potential to become the next big transformation because with the EU ambition of 40 gigawatts, but also we are sure with other parts of the world with, with, soon, with, with very tangible and large ambitions on green hydrogen, it is going to happen. And it is going to happen to scale. And we have a clear ambition to be among the, the absolute global leaders in green hydrogen. So it's a big deal. And, and
1: where would you, how do you think um, from an Allstead point of view, like where geographically is the opportunity from green hydrogen? I mean, obviously the places where there's a lot of sun, uh, Saudi Arabia and Chile, places like that. But from a kind yeah. of wind wind perspective, do you, do you think you can kind of be? I mean, you're, you're obviously a big player in the UK. Can can you produce green hydrogen? in you know localized area in the uk is that way how you would do it or is there a, another geography you'd look to enter because of uh, to take advantage
0: of it yeah I've, i have no doubt that green hydrogen and green hydrogen based fuels will be a, a global phenomenon within and, and and not too distant future uh, we are starting in europe for at, at least a couple of reasons one of them is this is where we have our, our large installed base this is where we have a sort of a very very big existing presence in especially in offshore and the second key reason is that europe has sort of a, a, a quite concentrated number of large industrial clusters that yeah. are big current hydrogen offtakers and they are typically close close to the coast so right. that would make it pretty obvious to make hydrogen based solutions and and hydrogen and as i'm sure you are very aware is, is not a super convenient thing to transport over long distances. Yeah. So yeah. the closer that large scale electricity generation and also elect- uh, electrolyzer capacity can be to the actual off-takers of green hydrogen, that makes sense. And that's why we start in, in Europe. If you look right. further down the road as to whether when, when we through s- uh, synthesis will, uh, will eventually p- uh, produce more green fuels such as e-methanol or e-ammonia. Yeah. Uh, th- this is something that holds a greater degree of flexibility as to where that is produced, because that, that can be produced, the, the, the energy density of those fuels is higher. So that can, in principle, be a more global market, whereas hydrogen, we actually believe, will be much more local and and regional.
1: Right, interesting. And are you assuming that the likes of the UK and other kind of relatively forward-thinking governments will, do you think they will kind of support the hydrogen market like they did with the wind wind market through contracts with difference? um some kind of subsidies um, would you, are you do you, do you factor that into your thinking
0: or or yeah. what? it has to it has to happen George because it, it, exactly I mean and I would not see it as a cost I would see it as an investment because right now green hydrogen would be sort of at, at, at least two to three times more costly to produce than grey yeah. hydrogen based on fossil fuels yeah and and even though both both the the, the people like us who would produce it but also off-takers uh, who use a lot of hydrogen. We all know where that needs to end, but short-term uh, accepting for, so- for somebody to accept uh, the, the triple price of the current input is something which is super difficult, and that would slow down the transition. So right. the, 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 the best thing like like uh, countries like like Denmark and the UK have done was saying, we will ensure that developers can grade, can get clarity and visibility of what prices will will be available for hydrogen in the next, let's just say 10 years, because that's right. probably a realistic horizon before green hydrogen will be fully competitive with, uh, right. with, with gray. That is something that would make people like us make very large scale investment and scale that industry a lot faster. So yes, I believe this is something where well, the most forward-looking states and regions in the world will soon embark upon that. And we see that both at the EU level, but also at some of the EU member states, that that is starting to to materialize, even though right. nobody has sort of firmed it up uh, clearly yet.
1: Right. But, I mean, it just, just for Orsted, um like, is there a way of kind of a very rough rule of thumb of like, by 20, say 2035 or pick a date? Like, do you have a kind of expectation of, how much hydrogen you know in terms of how much hydrogen would contribute to your business in terms of you know like rough percentage of revenue or EBITDA or however you look at it is there a way of thinking about that
0: yeah we've we, no we have not done that yet because we do need to see the regulatory frames come a little bit more into right. place and that that's why we we the current phrasing is we want to be a global leader in renewable hydrogen and green fuels but we have not tried to quantify it yet because it really does depend too much on how soon will what schemes come in place from a regulatory point of view that will allow us to scale sooner or later but we want it to be a substantial part and um, and and we also want to ensure that the what we do for example with our current 10 pilot projects some of them really large scale that we want to be one of those who will show and inspire the rest of the industry and that this is not only possible it's also competitive and and profitable to do, which will make an entire industry follow.
1: Right. Okay. And um, I mean, just lastly, on hydrogen, do you, you, there's quite interesting back and forth going on between the green hydrogen we've been talking about and uh, blue hydrogen, which is effectively uh, the kind of normal grey hydrogen with the carbon taken out. And there's been a couple of academic reports saying that blue hydrogen is um, uh, not not very good. Um, And, it, you know, it it tends to be a kind of uh, people who don't like gas and fossil fuels. Accordingly, don't like blue hydrogen. Do you do you share the do you share the scepticism of blue hydrogen? Because obviously, green hydrogen is zero carbon and therefore better. But it's also, as you said, it, it, it's it's not cost competitive yet. And we it seems like we need a certain amount of hydrogen of some type in order to kind of help decarbonize in the round. So how how do you think about it?
0: Yeah, I think, I I have no doubt that the fundamentally right long-term solution is green hydrogen. Mm-hmm. And I, I actually think that relatively few, if any, people sort of seriously contest that. And, and that is why uh, I, what is most important to us is that regulators around the world, when support schemes are designed, that they fundamentally push and accelerate the right long-term solution. Mm-hmm. Because the, the I would be very happy... If in an in-between period, if blue hydrogen could replace gray hydrogen, that's all good and fine. But what is a grave concern is that if we say if we have 100 available to support, if 50 of that goes to blue hydrogen, which fundamentally has to be a transitionary technology only, because we shouldn't continue to do it, then that would slow down the investments in the right long-term solution. So from a political point of view, I have zero doubt that the right thing to do is to, to wholeheartedly support the acceleration of green. And then if there is a competitive market uh, to ensure that we can replace some of the gray with the blue, to, to, with carbon capture, then that's all good and fine. But please do not spend the scarce support money to accelerate what at best is a temporary technology.
1: Yeah, well, that's, that's, the, that's the kind of thing with it. the UK's hydrogen strategy has taken a bit of heat because it's it kind of says we'll have a dual track approach. And we'll do both. It doesn't actually doesn't actually necessarily say that means 50, percent of an investment will go in one and 50 percent in the other. But um, they th- that sounds a little bit like what you're saying, because they are basically prioritising both. But um, ultimately, you have to prioritise one
0: <laughs> at some point, I would have thought. Absolutely. No, I, I, and again, I think it's perfectly fine to promote having blue uh, as well. But but where the investment needs to go is in green.
1: Right. Fair enough. This is a pre-COP26 podcast, and we're only a couple of months away from it now.
0: Just how are you,
1: from a kind of corporate point of view, approaching COP26? I mean, what's, are there a kind of handful of things that would, that, they could do there which would really really help the promotion of renewables I mean there's some obvious ones but what, how do you how do you kind of approach that
0: yeah I mean we, we are we of course I mean COP26 is is an important sort of milestone event on something that we are pushing every single hour of every single day namely right. to ensure that 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 the decarbonization journey continues I mean we have we have no doubt even though we, are, we, we live from renewable energy, but we need to first and foremost ensure that the decarbonization targets, committed decarbonization targets are, are agreed and also internationally committed by governments. There will be energy efficiency, there will be electrification, there will be build out of renewable energy. And we, of course, uh, not least care about the latter. And, and, and even though hydrogen may seem like sort of only a parenthesis to this, hydrogen is really, really important because that is a market that doesn't exist. So what we are are focusing on is if we could, what we are hoping for at COP is that even more countries could come with even more ambitious decarbonization targets. Mm -hmm. We are hoping that if not all the solutions are there, then at least clear commitment to remove the roadblocks for a very fast build out of renewable energy. And then also to ensure that we get even firmer, sort of firmer commitments to to support the rollout of hydrogen and green fuels, uh, which again, I mentioned a fellow Danish company like like Maersk which is the world's largest container shipper. Yeah. They've they've said they need to replace 12 and a half million tons of of fuel every year with green fuels. That that alone is such a massive factor that without proper regulators that, that will never happen or at least not in our lifetime. And we need to make that happen. So, so replacing fuels from sectors that can't electrify is going to be a vital part of also what is being sort of committed and, and confirmed at COP.
1: Right. I mean, if you if you kind of compare it to what you might have assumed, what your expectations might have been, like a year ago, pre the Biden administration and um, when China started to show kind of more interest in emissions reductions, is it, is it right to be kind of optimistic for? The chances of some kind of real serious national targets or do you you know when you're when you're making your when you're having your planning meetings are you not making any assumptions about
0: what what will happen yeah no we we i think it's actually an obligation of all leaders whether you are sort of political leader or business leader you have to be realistically optimistic because being optimistic saying this will surely succeed is 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 naive but I think we, we, we need to show a can-do attitude, but there are also things that are not good enough. And I mean, if you look at countries uh, who say that our emissions will peak by 2030, mm. that, that will mean that if if all the current countries who are saying that are not least uh, a country like China where, and, and, and in China and other places of the world, we are still, new coal-fired power plants are still being built. If that yeah. continues, uh, and if we peak with our emissions in, in 2030 in some of the the largest emitters in the world, then we will have used 80% of the carbon reserve we have available to get to net zero by 20, uh, to, to, to 2050. And, yeah. and that means that the one and a half degree scenario is gone if that happens. So we are not done with upping our commitments for decarbonization. And that is also why I think the, the, the international pressure from both business and other countries has to stay extremely high. Because we are, even though a lot of great things have happened also with the Biden administration, we, we are not yet at a place where we need to be to stay within one and a half or two degrees by 2050. And we have an obligation to do that.
1: Right. Just lastly, a kind of non-cop question. But when you look across some of your competitors, uh, power competitors in the, the oil and gas sector, these are they're still, um, relative to your size, still kind of bigger than you and for the time being. Uh, some of the biggest ones are. And I just wondered, like, if you if you got into a situation, could you ever kind of see a situation where the likes of, you know, the biggest players like Exxon or Shell finally realise that their, their strategies no longer work and yours does? I mean, basically, could you see a situation where they start lobbying in bids for you, that kind of thing, but you clearly have a strategy that is in keeping with the transition and they don't. So, do you do you think they will see that kind of like handbrake turn at some point, uh, or either of either kind of towards you or other players in the renewable sector?
0: Yeah, I, I have no doubt that there will be there will be consolidation potentially in the renewable sector. But I think we, I, I will be honest and say we do not spend many seconds uh, speculating <laughs> whether that's that's going to happen. I mean, we we concentrate fully and wholly on accelerating our journey. And and even though we are not. We are not clearly of energy companies in the world. We are nowhere near one of the very biggest, but in terms of green energy and especially in terms of offshore, we are one of and and in offshore the biggest. So yeah. we will continue to prove that the scalability is there, and also proving that it's not just possible, but it's also something that can that can create a, a healthy return uh, for for investors, but also something that that is value creating. So we can continue to accelerate our journey. Without uh, sort of needing to work with others, sometimes we will work with others, but we don't need to. And this is what we are—we are trying to prove that that uh, that a different path is not only possible; it is possible at a faster pace than most people think.
1: Right. Okay. But um, I mean, and you mentioned when you talk about consolidation in the renewable sector, what would be the what will be the 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 driver of that? Do you think?
0: I mean, scale scale matters. Uh, no doubt. And we can see that by being by being clearly the biggest in offshore. So when we have scale, for example, on, uh, on the EU, UK, uh, East or West Coast, mm-hmm. if we have sort of gigawatts of capacity, our ability to to have scale advantages in terms of both the, the size and capability of the team, uh, in terms of y- y- leveraging or utilizing the same vessels uh, and having economies of scale from that, harbor investments and so on. So there is just something around scale in this business that 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 matters. And I have no doubt that with hydrogen, which will take another sort of, uh, it'll be, be an even more sort of ambitious build-out mm. uh, of, of, uh, of of renewable energy. Also there, there could certainly be, uh, be, 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 be advantages. So scale matters in many places, but what we try to be, And so far, I would would, sort of uh, humbly say that with with some some, uh, success, we have been able to sort of combine a a fairly sized company with the nimbleness that, that, that is needed to navigate fast and act on the opportunities that come and have the resolve needed to make the most difficult decisions to make the transformation.
1: Okay. well, I think we're going to leave it there. That was a really interesting chat. I just wanted to say say thank you so much for joining us. And we really appreciate your time.
0: Absolutely. Thanks a lot, George.
1: Thanks again to my guest, Mads Nipper, and to you, our listeners, for tuning in. This podcast was produced by Sharon Lam and Katrina Hamlin in Hong Kong. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Acast. Also, check us out at BreakingViews.com and on Twitter, where our handle is at BreakingViews.